And we begin the program uh, today with uh, Radhika Fox, who uh, is, as I mentioned uh, before, uh, the director of the Value of Water uh, Coalition. Um, and uh, we welcome her in today. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you. A big push, understand, today through uh, Thursday. So you're, I think you're doing a lot of interviews. Uh, appreciate you taking some time uh, for us. Uh, what is the Value of Water Coalition? Uh, the Value of Water Coalition is a, um, it's a, a, an education campaign that uh, includes public utilities, water-reliant businesses, community-based organizations, private sector groups all around the country. And we have come together to shine a light on the uh, crisis um, affecting our water systems all around the country and to urge uh, our political leaders uh, and the public uh, that it's time for the next generation of investment in, in our water systems. So uh, tell us about the, you, you used the word crisis, crisis in the infrastructure that gets us our water? Yes, actually, you know, um, so many of our water and wastewater systems were built really um, 100 years ago, some, some even later than that. And um, these systems are aging and failing. Uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers gives this nation a degrade as far as the, the, the condition of our, of our water system, our water infrastructure. And, you know, we have uh, a crisis where, you know, all around the country, every two minutes we see a water main that breaks. Uh, we have about a $4 trillion gap in the investment that we need to make. So, so we're really trying to educate people about how essential water is and, and why we need to invest. And, uh, you know, infrastructure is not sexy, right? I guess you're trying to make it more so so that people pay attention to it and invest in it. Uh, that is pretty startling. Would you say every, every two minutes a water main breaks? Yeah, and um, you know, and you're right that infrastructure is not sexy. And then we have a real challenge around in water because you know I used to work on transportation issues, and at least with roads and bridges and buses and trains, you can see and touch and feel feel that infrastructure, right? So people tend to care more. But with water, um, so much of the infrastructure is out of sight, out of mind. Actually, there's about 1.5 million miles of, of pipes um, beneath our feet. It's 30 times the length of the interstate highway, but people don't think about it. Um, and so, so some of what we're trying to do over the next three days uh, with Imagine a Day Without Water is really try to help people understand how water touches, touches everything in their, in their lives. You know, for example, it takes 880 gallons of water to make just one gallon of milk. It takes about 3,000 gallons of water to produce one pair of blue jeans. And so when we think about water, it, it's certainly about the clean water that comes when you turn, turn on the tap, and it's the dirty water that goes away and, and is cleaned when you flush the toilet, but it's also about how water um, is a critical input into everything in our lives and everything in our economy. Now, I think if we if we think about it, we we would I guess intuitively uh, agree that water is part of our food. Although I, I don't think we think about that as much as perhaps we should. But uh, water is part of your car, right? Forty thousand gallons. I'm reading on your website to make your car. That's right. That's right. And that's not even counting the gas. Yeah, that's just to con construct the car. I want to go over this, uh, how much water is used in your home, and you, you say on average 17% goes towards showering, 27% used by the toilet, your faucet drains 15%, your clothes washer another 22%, miscellaneous needs 5%, 
and those uh, pesky leaks steal another 14% of the water. And yeah, I think a lot of right. that, we, we don't, it's just routine. We don't think about it. It's right. I mean, we, uh, and uh, I mean, if certainly there are so many small changes that we can make at the individual level that can bring that usage down, whether it's, you know, water, more water efficient um, fixtures, taking shorter showers. You know, I live in California. We're in epic drought. And, uh, you know, I started to bathe my kids together. They're, they're, so there's a lot of individual actions that, that people can take. But you know, I think what is important as a society is to really understand the role that this infrastructure has played in and allowing us to live the, the, the lives that we live and, um, and, and to, to collectively act to, to tell our political leadership that we want to make these investments. We need to make these investments for our children and for future generations. So if we invest in the infrastructure, we could uh, perhaps cut down on that 14% that's, you know, the leaks that take that. Um, what, what else are you suggesting? What, what are you pushing for? What do you, what would you like people to do as, as they imagine a day without water? Well, at the individual level, we're really, at, you know, inviting people to understand where their water comes from and to get to know the water and the wastewater systems that bring that water to and from their homes and businesses. So, um, you know, take a tour of your local wastewater treatment plant. Um, take a minute to understand where does where's the source of your drinking water come from. It's amazing how few people you know know where their water comes from. But also, um, we're asking elected officials to ramp up their investment in water. So at the local level, we hope that mayors, city councils, um, really support their local utilities as they're trying to to undertake these capital programs. And at the federal government, at the federal level, we really need our, our um, federal government to be a stronger partner to us, and provide uh, local communities with access to low-cost capital um, so that they can accelerate um, investment in water. And, and the, the truth is, this is um, one of the best bets that we can make as a nation. Last year, uh, we did a study. It looked at 30 cities around the country, and it said, you know, what's the job and economic impact of investment in water? And what we found is just those 30 communities are responsible for about creating about 300,000 jobs a year and about $50 billion in economic output. So, you know, there's a way that when we invest in water, we're, we're also solving some of the economic challenges that our communities face. You just joined us. We're talking about water. We'll be talking about water throughout the program. Coming up, a conversation with uh, Blanding City Manager uh, Jeremy Red. We'll also be talking with Betsy Damon, who's an artist who does large-scale art installations, helping us to focus on water. And those installations actually help purify, clean the water. Um, and we're talking right now with Radhika Fox, who's CEO of U.S. Water Alliance and director of the Value of Water Coalition. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, Radhika Fox, I was, uh, was fascinated, but you have a section here on water and the environment. So 349 billion gallons of fresh water are withdrawn every day in the United States. 41% of that water is used to produce thermoelectric power. Another 37% goes to irrigation. That's Not all that fresh water withdrawn is, it goes to, uh, for drinking water and such. Which... That's right, actually. And, and this is one of the things that most people uh, don't think about, but that actually water is one of the most important inputs that we have in, in the production of energy. 
um, certainly in the production of food and agriculture. So, um, so it's critically important that we um, have sustainable water supplies uh, to meet all of those manufacturing and production needs that we have in this country. Um, we're tremendously excited about some of the innovation that's happening around the country in recycling um, and reusing water for things, for example, like industrial and manufacturing uses. A lot of innovation happening um, around the water energy nexus. So, for example, tomorrow, as part of Imagine a Day Without Water, our coalition members in D.C. are actually announcing a new project where they're taking wastewater and turning it into energy, and they're turning it into a fertilizer that can be used for food growing. So this whole cycle of water, energy, industry, agriculture, it's very important that we understand the interrelationship between those, those things. And uh, we're, we just have a couple of minutes. But I want to talk about the water and the economy. And uh, the one bullet point here, one-fifth of the U.S. economy would grind to a halt without a clean source of water. Absolutely. And again, this is the, you know, I think, again, people um, often take water for granted, right? But at least we sometimes think about that clean glass of drinking water that comes out of our tap when we turn it on or the water that, you know, we flush away that's treated before it's returned to the environment. People don't think as much about the fact that water is essential to mining, to agriculture. Um, You know, uh, you can't make life uh, saving medicines without access to water, and so um, so what you're actually seeing around the country is large companies are also stepping up. They're really looking at what what their water footprint is and what's the role, for example, that they can play from a stewardship perspective. Uh, here's another interesting fact: if drinking water and soda pop cost equally, your water bill would skyrocket more than ten thousand percent. That brings me to a point that you know we often talk about here that. Uh, water is undervalued in terms of the price we pay, uh, you know, a lot of subsidies, should, should, uh, should water be priced higher? Well, I think it should be priced higher. Um, you know, if you look at the cost of um, delivering uh, uh, drinking water and taking away wastewater from, from your home, from your business, uh, the co- the, what you're actually charged typically is not um, paying for the cost of service. Um, part of the reason for that is, you know, decades ago the federal government uh, did provide uh, low-cost loans and grants that, that, you know, helped these systems be built up. So I think, uh, you know, the general public is used to paying um, very affordable rates. But, but by way of contact, uh, a contrast, in America today, this is a national average, it's different in different communities, but on average... Um, you know, people pay less than $500 a year for their water and wastewater service. They pay on average about, you know, $1,200, $1,500 a year for their cable bill. Um, but you tell me, if your cable runs out, that's a nuisance. If, you, if, if you're cut off from water, that's a crisis. So, so water and wastewater service is very affordable relative to other things in this country, and I think it's time um, that we pay more for this essential service. Mm. We'll uh, leave it there. We'll send people to the website. Very interesting facts here, and, uh, and there there's some interesting posters here. Some it's a it's a toolkit. Um, what's the value of water? There's a, a dirty kid coming in from soccer, and the point is, uh, you know, without water, uh, you can't get the kid or his clothes clean. You got a swimming pool there. Yep. You got you got yep. some uh, toilet stalls. Uh, you know, and that yep. that's maybe we don't like to think about that, but that takes water. So. 
Yeah, and, and firefighting, and there's a whole, and, and thank you for mentioning the Value of Water Toolkit. Um, to just let your listeners know, if you go to the valueofwater.org, um, there's all of these facts and figures, but all of this creative material as well, and it's all open source, free to download, and free to use in your own community. So we hope that it, it's helpful to people as they're undertaking their own education efforts. And again, this this initiative, this push is uh, today through Thursday, but I'm, I'm sure it'll be ongoing. And uh, so we've been talking with uh, Radhika Fox, who's CEO of the U.S. Water Alliance and director of the Value of Water Coalition. They're asking us to think about what it would be like without water, a day without water. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking uh, in about 15, 10, 10 minutes or so. We're going to talk with uh, Betsy Damon, who's an environmental activist, artist, a planner, and designer. And uh, she's coming to Utah for a couple of lectures as a part of the Art System uh, Project at Utah State University, the intersection of art and the STEM sciences, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, also part of the 2015 Utah State University Year of Water, which is ongoing. Uh, she does uh, large-scale art parks featuring sculptural flow forms and public art events to help clean urban waterways and raise water awareness around the world. So we'll be talking with you, with her. We bring in now, uh, welcome back to the program, uh, Jeremy Redd, who is a city manager for the city of Blanding in southeastern Utah. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate you uh, talking with us, and uh, you'll uh, probably remember uh, our reporter Melissa Allison's uh, story from a while ago. Brown lawns popular in Blanding. Uh, Blanding has a unique water situation. Uh, Jeremy, Rudd, remind us, you you depend in large measure on, on snowmelt, I believe. We do. Um, almost all of the water that we get that our community depends on is from snowmelt. We don't have any rivers in our community, so we we rely on the snow that falls. Um, we rely on the runoff that comes from that snow melting, and then we, we put it in reservoirs and use it. So um, we're in a unique situation that way. Now, uh, scientists tell us that with, with climate change, we may be seeing a precipitation more in the form of rain than snow. If that were to happen, what, how would that impact you? Well, that's definitely what we saw this year. We had a much lighter snow year last year than we typically do, but we had a lot of rain, uh, especially early in the spring and in the month of July. Uh, it impacts us because the rain, the rain really helps people, um, greens up their lawns, makes it so they don't have to use as much outside water, but it's much tougher to store the rain. You know, it's much, much more difficult to get that in a reservoir. A lot of it soaks into the ground, and so it doesn't quite give us the storage that we wish we had, but it, it does allow people that are water conscious to use less water at their home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, snow, we don't think about this much. Snow is nature's, uh, you know, it's a very nice storage, um, you know, method. And so that, that changing the, the way the precipitation comes would definitely affect it, especially a city like yours that has a very unique water situation. When we talked last, you said something very interesting, Jeremy Red. You said uh, most people you thought in Blanding are very aware where their water comes from, unlike a lot of other people in other towns. Yeah, and I think there's really two reasons why uh, people in Blanding maybe are a little more conscious of their water. Uh, number one, there's a great history of water development in the community. Um, the, the original water that came into the community had to be uh, piped through a tunnel that was dug through a mountain. It was a one-mile-long tunnel. So the early pioneers you know, made this huge sacrifice to dig this tunnel, and this, this is a story that's been passed down um, you know, from generation to generation. So people are very aware of the water 
the history of the water development in Blanding. The second thing, when you do rely on reservoirs and water storage, it's a very visual representation of the water situation for your community. So people, as they drive through, you know, out of town and back into town as they go places, they can see a half-empty reservoir or a half-full reservoir, and it's a lot like a gas gauge in your car. They really understand that their water comes from these reservoirs, and they can see that, that they're low or that they're high or that they're, you know, close to empty which really helps people in their mind understand that they have to be careful with that water. And I guess that that would be an advantage, wouldn't it, to, to see a visual representation of your city's water supply and a disadvantage for those whose, I guess, the, the vast majority of people where the water just comes out of the tap and you're, you're not quite sure where it comes from. Yeah, I think it's a huge advantage for us. Um, I know I grew up in the Cottonwood Heights area and I lived in Provo for a while, and I had no idea where the water uh, for our communities came from. I knew that I opened my tap and the water came out, and I guess I assumed that somebody had the job to make sure that water was there. And I think as you as you learn more about water, you understand that there is not a, a never-ending supply that uh, you certainly have to be careful in. And the, the residents of our community are very aware of that. They've they, New residents of the community are made very aware of it very quickly. And uh, like I said in, in the last time we spoke, um, People here do not waste water. If you see water running down the gutter, you get phone calls you mm. know, that there, there's water that's being wasted. And um, people, you know, you've got this peer pressure. People um, put pressure on their friends and neighbors to make sure that they're using water wisely. <laughs> the, so uh, do, you, do you think that would be helpful for other other towns that have a culture of, of that kind of peer pressure to collectively oh. save water? Yeah, absolutely I do. Um, a couple of things that we're working on right now, we, we're working on a couple of videos uh, that we can post on our website and use on social media that, that talk about the history of water development in the community, and they talk about um, you know, ways that you can conserve water. And, and I think just having that discussion and talking about it, letting, letting people in other communities know where their water comes from, how much it really takes to get that water from wherever their source is, through the system, you know, through the filtration system and get it to their home, I think a lot of people would be very surprised to find out how, you know, what that takes in their community. I was interested in that. I asked, asked Radica Fox in the last segment, I'll ask you as well, should water be priced higher? Well, that's something that we deal with a lot. Um, we are in the desert. We don't have an adequate source of water most years, but we're still very conscious to make sure that our citizens have water uh, you know, as a basic need that they can afford. You sure, you sure hate to price water out of anybody's reach. And, but what you see is as people conserve more, then you, you almost have to raise prices a little bit to take care of some of the fixed costs of running a water system. So that is a very delicate balance that we try to walk to make sure that people have water that they need, that it's, it's priced adequately, but that they're also incentivized to conserve as much as possible. Now, Blending had, uh, uh, I don't know if this is ongoing, it had a very successful, it seems like, uh, voluntary conservation effort. 18% less culinary water used in 2013 than 2012. Does that, is that yeah. ongoing? Do you continue to see gains there? Yes, absolutely. And, and since I've been here as the city administrator, we, we have not done anything other than voluntary conservation, asking people to conserve some of the things I talked about, making sure they're very aware of it. Um, but from... From this water year to last, we saw another 9% decrease 
about 200,000 gallons less in our culinary system. So people continue to conserve. Um, like I said, they look at that reservoir like a gas tank. And, and I think that when, if we have a good winter, good snow year this year, we put more water in that reservoir, then they'll, they'll look at that and they'll kind of automatically adjust their usage um, accordingly. But they're, they're very conscious and very worried about that. And, and we don't have to make them do it. That's, I think that's the key. If you, if you let people know how important that is and you have that sort of peer pressure, you don't have to force people to do it. You don't have to put in restrictions or alternate watering days or anything like that. Uh, so just a couple of minutes left. What, what sorts of things do you suggest that people do? And what sorts of things are people doing to conserve water? Well, one of the big things, um, we had a lot of precipitation in the month of July. Uh, our, our typical... Well, let's see, 2014, we had about three-quarters of an inch of rain. 2015, we had two-and-a-half inches of rain in Blanding, so it was quite a bit more. And the biggest thing that people can do is they can turn their sprinklers off until their lawn starts to show signs of stress, and that's what we've encouraged people to do. Um, you know, turn the sprinklers off when you get rain and, and wait until you start to see that lawn, you know, have signs of stress. It starts to get yellow, starts when you, when you step on it, the lawn doesn't spring back then you know maybe it's time for a little more water. But I think people becoming involved in how they water outside, um, where their sprinklers are pointing, and then just being very conscious of the fact that if you get rain, you can really turn that off for an extended period of time. There were, there were times this summer when I didn't use any outside watering for two or three weeks at a time because we, we got some nice intermittent rain, and, and you can let that lawn go a lot further with the rain. Uh, where can people go to find out uh, more about this? The, the, the city website? Yep, the city of Blanding, uh, blanding-ut.gov. Uh, we, we talk about water conservation on there, and that's where they can go to get more information. Well, congratulations on your ongoing successful efforts there. Well, thank you. I, certainly, it's a community effort, like I said, and it's everybody working together and recognizing the importance of the water that makes this possible. We thank uh, Jeremy Redd, who's city manager for the city of Blanding in southeastern Utah. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up following a break, we'll continue our discussion of water. By the way, it's uh, Utah State University's 2015 Year of Water. Um, And uh, we'll be uh, talking with Betsy Damon, who's an environmental activist and artist. She does uh, large-scale art parks featuring uh, uh, art forms and uh, public art events. These uh, art installations actually help clean urban waterways, and they raise water awareness around the globe. Before we go to break, uh, I just want to get this uh, email in from Glenn, who says, It's a small thing, but I went to great lengths to install valves in my showers when I uh, bought my house, but that didn't leak. I've noticed that made uh, many uh, shower tub combinations have a diverter in the downspout to engage the shower that typically leak when in shower mode. In my opinion, the manufacturers need to be brought to bear to fix this. My options were severely limited for style and functionality when I tried to, to buy systems that did not leak. I would guess that 5 to 10% of shower water leaks in these systems. Uh, so he's urging manufacturers to take a look at this and, of course, for us to be aware of that when we purchase these. Thanks for that, Glenn. Uh, more on water following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting the Austrian-based band Nozzle Brass, combining choreography, composition, and comedy. 
Saturday, October 18th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cashearts.org or 435-752-0026. And support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and Uinta Basin Healthcare in Roosevelt. Founded in 1944, celebrating over 70 years of service. Offering hospital, clinic, and pharmacy services. Details at ubh.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about water today on the program. We bring in a very interesting person now, uh, Betsy Damon, who's an environmental activist, artist, planner, designer. And uh, she is uh, giving a couple of lectures on October 8th at 6 p.m., lecture entitled I Am Water at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art on the Utah State University campus. Then on October 9th at 7 p.m., a lecture titled Water Creates. That's for the Science Unwrapped series at Utah State University. And uh, Betsy Damon's appearance at USU is a part of the Artsy STEM project. And the Year of Water 2015 is USU's Year of Water. Forty years ago, Betsy Damon stepped outside her traditional art training. She carved a unique path to work with the environment, communities, science, and art. She began looking into her inner consciousness as a source of inspiration, which initiated her public engagement, starting with gritty art performances on the New York City streets. She founded No Limits for Women Artists, a network to join and support female artists. And she says in 1985, after a cross-country camping trip with her children, she found herself reconnected to the primal elements of the natural world. Sound of wind, the flow of water, the forest, the rain. This initiated the casting of a 250-foot dry riverbed, the memory of clean water. we talk about all of that and more with Betsy Damon. Welcome to the program. Thank you. <laughs> that was cast in Utah. Was that cast the dry in Utah? Riverbed was cast in Moab, Utah. Was it really? Yeah. <laughs> so this uh, let me let me start there. Cross country camping trip with your children. What happened there to to kind of kind of redirected your career? Well, we spent seven weeks, and a lot of it in in parks and tents and everything like that. And I always took my children camping every summer anyway, and loved being outdoors. But I saw a lot of dry riverbeds, and um, I was struck by them, and I was struck by how when you live in a city, you don't remember what's out there. So my first impulse was to try and do something that would show people the the rivers. Um, And it was only later when I was casting the dry riverbed and I discovered that the waters were around there were polluted. All All the public spigots said not potable. And I remembered when I was a child that they were all potable. You could drink the water everywhere. But the experience of just camping with my children and being out there was so profound that I, um, and I, I tend to go sort of a combination of highly intuitive. Like I don't necessarily analyze everything. I just let myself have that intuitive instinct and go after it. So um, I woke up every morning in New York missing, missing the trees, missing the sounds of birds, missing all these things. And um, that was a, um, just a, an awakening. <laughs> and I was doing a performance event called um, Healing the Stones for the Survival of the Planet. 
So it, it wasn't so total, you know, there was many layers in my life. And I would uh, invite people to, uh, I had read about healings in other, in indigenous cultures. And I, every full moon, once a month in a New York gallery, I held this performance event. So I was, you know, I was doing things. People would cry and, I mean, I once held one for 400 people and I said, oh, what are you going to um, make sure it survives? And this was 1984. <laughs> and then and, and I'd have people talk, say what their ideal was and make a commitment with a stone, but then I'd also later ask them to make a real decision about a step they would take, like talk to somebody or begin recy- recycling and things like that. So I was already engaged. Yeah, yeah, it's it's even increased. Uh, so if a uh, you know audience of four hundred cried at that point, what do what reaction are you getting at, at this point? What what are people telling you that they're feeling about? Uh, I guess about water. That's complicated. Um, it depends where I am, and most people. How am I going to say this? I like. We have an illusion that our waters are okay, and um, a few of them are, but I'd say everything's under threat right now, and we use most of our fresh water every day, goes through some kind of cycle, and every day that degrades it a little bit. So understanding understanding the role in water as the most biodynamic, aggressive life force we have have here and we're here because of it and reclaiming that deeper understanding of water is what I talk about (laughs) Um, and how important it is like for example we in the U.S. buy the most bottled water in the world and that's what's shocking to find out because we also theoretically still have clean water so what happened (laughs) you know that people would believe that they it's better to buy bottled water when every bottled water is destroying another ecosystem. So what am I finding out? I'm finding out that people are very confused. Hmm. But if you go somewhere like where people still live very close to the land and they know how to keep their waters clean or the importance of it, they're not so confused. The places even in Europe, that have preserved their traditions for hundreds of years, have kept a consciousness of water that's alive, and so they're not as confused. So I, I find people are very confused. Hmm. D- tell me more about the, the places that have kept their uh, you know, water consciousness alive. Well, but, you know, we all have springs. Especially there's, across our entire continent here, there was a knowledge of where the healthy waters were and how important it was to keep them. That's not always true, but it, it's a lot true. And um, so because people knew that they depended on those water sites for their own health, they, they understood that, um, how very, very important it is. And when I first went to Minnesota, they had four places still where you could pump artesian water. 
that the public could just go pump it. This was in the 90s. So, so I went and interviewed them. Why do you come here? You know, they'd say, my, my, I'm healthier on this. My plants grow better. My coffee tastes better and things like that. And those have been closed down so that people can't have a free supply of this water. So that knowledge was still there. And, um, you know, we've, we've added many chemicals to our water systems to, to keep them clean because the longer your pipe system is, the dirtier, dirtier it gets and for all kinds of other reasons. But um, I was in Albion, Michigan, and there's a, a public spring that has a sign on it, don't drink it. But actually, it's the best water. In the, that I found in the city, hmm. uh, um, and the local people know that. So there, there's just you know, there's a lots and lots of confusion about what it what it means. T- we've taken away a direct relationship. Yeah, I guess that's a key. Uh, I'm curious why why is that sign up? Don't don't. Well, it's up um, because the water's not monitored. Oh, so, okay. So then, they, you know, they want to be responsible. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it, it, those things are complicated. And the, and the farmers use a lot of uh, pollu- toxins on their farmland. So, you know, that could leak into that supply of water. That's probably the logic behind it. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's everything's connected. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Betsy Damon. She's uh, an artist, and she's an environmental activist, and many other things. She's uh, founded Keepers of the Waters. You can find out more about that at keepersofthewaters.org. Uh, so, one of the goals here, I expect, is to connect people to the water, get them thinking about, about water. A lot of times, yeah, we, we don't think about it. get people reconnected, conscious again, um, Conscious again about the foundation of life. It was I originally found it just to spread how you make a living system. After I did the living water garden, um, like none of this is rocket science, and so I originally did that. And it's still kind of it's a free service. I was just talking. How long will I keep this going? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and lots of people do use it i mean it has reading lists on it and um you know links and things like that but now that so many people are addressing water um but but i don't know that many people address it the way i do mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah i wonder if we could maybe get into that part of it a little bit tell me a little bit more about the living water garden it's fascinating well, the Living Water Garden I um, ended up is in China. I didn't set out to do it. I'd been trying to do something like that in Minnesota since 1990. And um, so it came about, that's a very long and fascinating story. <laughs> but and the short version is, is I what, received funding anonymously to go to China to direct the artist to pay for the city to pay attention to their waters. And the city's Chengdu and it's the capital of Sichuan. And they had a they're the only city, it turned out, in China that actually had a green plan. They for their five year plan was to restore the river and put parks all along the river's edge. 
I didn't know that. And um, but when I was directing this project, which for which they broke all their rules because they don't permit um, public art like that, and um, I was well, I was, and they watched me very very closely, and you know decided I was an okay human being. Um, but in the and in the process of directing this whole project, I was asked to look at their plans for their the parks. And I was amazed. There was no movie theaters or restaurants or, quote, economic opportunities. It was all parkland. And I said, why don't you make a park to teach your citizens how nature cleans water? And they said, can you do that? And I nodded my whole body, kind of like going, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. And um, then they talked for two minutes, and they told me they would like me to do this, um, and but they wanted me to give up doing the performance artwork and do that. And I actually the next day said, "I we have to complete this first project." And and I was completely right because um, that's what I had the money for, and people that's where everyone's energy was. And and then they said, "Well, we'll watch you very carefully, and if we like what you do, we'll ask you." back to design this park. So they asked me back in five months later, um, and I went back and planned this park with them, and they chose the largest piece of land that they had already, was already in design. It was already in blueprint to be built, which never happens anywhere in the world. You never go into blueprint and then give the project away to somebody else. So they gave the land to us to design. I had no contract. I made no money. <laughs> um, they gave me everything they could for free, office, apartment, food, everything. And um, some people, uh, some grants came through. Not enough, but enough. And we built this park, which initially the premier of China opposed it as bad economic development. And um, then two years later, when he came to see it, he said, this is the best thing that ever happened in China. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's a very long story. It's a fantastic story. And the man who chose to build the park to take me into his offices was risked his entire career. He really risked going, going to jail. And um, no one had ever accepted a foreigner into a government office before. And um, my son, who spoke Chinese, was with me, and he was nominally the project director. He did incredibly. And a lot of Chinese people volunteered in my office for very, or for very, very little money. And we did it. It was amazing. <laughs> I mean, beyond understanding. So the, I guess the stereotype is true in some of these areas. A lot of pollution, but this this I guess this project you you actually can see the the natural processes at work cleaning the water. Yep, yep. There's seven processes, and they tested it. The scientists it really succeeded because the only man who understood kind of followed international research on wetlands. He'd never left China. Um, was there working with the government, and he. He um, did all the research and had his graduate students, and he set up his office above the park, directed the 
installation and, and actually the measurements of absolutely everything. And then he tested it for a whole year. Mm. Um, so it's gone through a lot of other problems after that. But, yeah, it cleaned the water to drinking water quality. And it was an extraordinary innovation. Yeah. And every mayor of governor came to see it. I didn't meet them. They hid, they hid me. Um, <laughs> and uh, But it was amazing. So I wonder, and, and uh, I'm reading some press materials on this project, uh, so one way nature cleans water, water is rhythmic oscillation of water currents as they pass from one pool to another. Uh, and it occurred to me... You know, we've industrialized water, haven't we? We've, we've, uh, and one of the results is, as you say, we're confused about it, or maybe we don't even think about it. It comes out of our tap. C- yeah. C- could we get back to some of these natural rhythms? Oh, do you totally. think? Or... In a split second. <laughs> we we could. Okay. Really, honestly. That would work economically and everything. It'd be better. It would be cheaper. W- what would that look it like? It would be then? cheaper to have um, just take golf courses. It would be cheaper that they have to keep their 27 different chemicals and clean them up with wetlands that they have on their property than to put them in the river the way they do. Hmm. So you'd, you'd, uh, you'd, you'd have wetlands, I guess, adjacent to the golf course? Yep. Their runoff would have to not go into a river. Okay. Okay. It's just we, so we constantly view the rivers as our, our, our cleaning system, right? Mm-hmm. So most wastewater treatment plants are on rivers. They need to be moved. <laughs> yeah. That we need a long-term strategy to move them. Yeah. We need to not have the, our, our effluent, we need a, a totally integral system, and we know how to do it, that would reuse everything. Reuse everything efficiently. I mean, if we're going to be on this planet, we have to switch to these things. Mm-hmm. And the the economic bottom line has to take in all the factors, all the factors. Mm-hmm. How, how, how many people get ill from this, um, the, the long-term losses. Everything. You know, we can't just price the chopsticks. You have to price the forest. Right, right. You can't just price the water bottle. You have to price the land the, the and the air and everything of transporting those water bottles and all the pollution lines that are being, you know, that are happening. And plus, it's bad for your health to drink out of plastic. So uh, I, the, the, price, the pricing structure would have to be changed. If the pricing structure were changed to accurately reflect all of those hidden costs, then I think it would be, become more clear to us, wouldn't it, uh, the changes that It would become be very clear. Yeah. And you can go on now and find your own footprint. I think every student should have to find their own footprint. How, where do you go to do that? The, the website you can so find it? your footprint. You can go online okay. and then you put in how many cars you have, how many square feet you live with, you know, a, a bunch of indicators, right? Mm-hmm. Most people in the United States live off five planets or nine. <laughs> right. Uh, so, if, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you just joined us, we're talking with Betsy Damon. She's an environmental activist, artist, planner, and designer. 
And uh, she's coming for a couple of events on the Utah State University campus in Logan. October 8th, 6 p.m. is a lecture. I Am Waters, the title of that. That'll be at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. Then on October 9th, 7 p.m., a lecture titled Water Creates. That's for the Science Unwrapped series. That'll be on the USU campus as well. And this is a part of the Artsy STEM uh, project, and it's part of USU's 2015 Year of Water. We're talking uh, for another <laughs> several minutes with Betsy Damon. Uh, Betsy Damon, I wonder, uh, I've been reading on your website, Keepers of the Waters, that's keepersofthewaters.org, a fascinating project. This is pretty new. The, the project in the Larimer neighborhood in, uh, in Pittsburgh, and there's a video I encourage people to go and watch. There's a lady there who I think speaks for a lot of us. She said before she participated in the project, she didn't really think about where her water was coming from. There's another lady who says she cut her water bill in half participating in this. Uh, what, what's, the, what's that project? What are you doing there? Oh, well, I've been there a lot for four years. It, so a lot of rainwater falls on this plateau, 120 million gallons a year approximately. And it's a very, very poor neighborhood that's going through, um, you know, economic development and what's called gentrification or, um, you know, urban, urban renewal. And their infrastructure is very old. So it's an opportunity to put in an infrastructure, uh, what's called a green infrastructure. And it's also an opportunity, since they have so much water, to capture that water and reuse it with economic development in mind or you know, reuse it. There's businesses or uh, particular playgrounds or water features so that this whole place would be transformed into a basically self-sustaining community. And they made that agenda in 2010, before I came. They had a agenda of sustainable energy, water, food. So, you know, they're talking about an urban farm now, and of course, collecting their own water for that and cleaning it as whatever is necessary, probably very little because there's not a lot of truck or other kinds of traffic. Um, Now there's some pollution from the air, but that's only the first flush, what's called first flush, when the the first rains wash that pollution off the roofs. The rest of the water is is pretty, pretty very good quality. So um, this woman, she put in rain barrels and she, started using them for her garden and also figuring out how to use as much as possible in the house too and has reduced her water bill bill dramatically. Mm. And the water bills there are going up 15% every year. Mm. So they're raising dramatically. And I mean, that's a whole other discussion about what we do is take over the natural resources and then sell them back to people at a very high price. Yeah. Um, And there's... There's all kinds of reasons for for doing these, for changing to having, say, you collect your water along the street, put in bioswales that look very, you know, bioswale is like a three-foot deep ditch that's then planted in the water um, with plants that can look beautiful in dry or wet, but you develop the cityscape becomes also a greenscape, and it reconnects the system. Um, the green systems and the that you know makes a much more biodynamic place for people to be. So that's the vision for this community. Um, 
We've done a lot. We've all right up to the mayor, gotten support for this vision. It means the engineers at Pittsburgh Sewer and Water have to adapt their toolkit. Engineers have very specific toolkits they put in, so they have to adapt it for bioswales and, um, you know, so that there's an overflow into the sewer system if, if there's absolutely too much water and we are, we've also intercepted the water that's created the great big floods um, that where people drowned. So, and this whole project actually addresses that issue too, because that water poured off this plateau. Hmm. So it it's complicated and it takes care of all a lot of things, but it would be a, a I'll see how far it can go. We we don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly influencing a lot that's happening in different districts in Pittsburgh also who are now also adopting um, doing this. So, you know, that's the project. Yeah, it's 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 quite inspiring to see people come together. On the video, there's another part that, uh, that jumped out at me. Apparently, they did role-playing. So you you, know, you, you uh-huh. pick up a card. I'm a water manager, or I'm a water consumer, or I'm a you know city official, whatever it is, and then you yeah, try to yeah. try to work through things. I thought that was a pretty useful exercise to just keep get people thinking about the whole process of how water gets to to them. That's a really good exercise. That comes from a company called Evolve EA, and um, they're they've got a number of those, and they're they're echo district planners, and um, yeah. It's a really good exercise. We just have a few yeah. minutes uh, left here, um, and uh, I encourage people to go to the website, keepersofthewaters.org, uh, Betsy Damon's website. I wonder, just at the end here, um, I've been looking a little bit at your blog there on Keepers of the Waters, and we talked about bottled water, that that's actually you know harmful, you don't, you don't want to, because that you know commodifies a natural resource. Um, what are some other suggestions you might have for people who might be wondering, well, what can I do? Just my personal life. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, what I do is I, um, I'm very mindful of what cleaning, what, what cleaning things I use, what I put into back, you know, back down my water system. I'm very, trying to be very thoughtful about that. And, um, that's that's the biggest thing. I mean, I try to be as thoughtful about that as I am thoughtful about what I would put in my body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, uh, that's you know, when you scale up, I mean, I live in a place where all the streams have been buried, and uh, you know, it's it's very different. I look forward to being out there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I. Also have a, a small place on a on a on a, a very pristine lake, but recently fire retardants, which are put in everything now, have registered in the water so that they're affecting the loon population. And um, again, there were you know it's not like we need fire retardants in absolutely everything. We don't. So. That's, you know, every couch, every piece, anything you buy has fire retardants in it now. Um, go online and look it up. And There's so many things that it's hard to say, you know, just to remember. Everything ends up in your water. 
what ends up in your water ends up in your food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely. really hard to think about it. I make a point always of eating organic food if for no other reason to support the whole industry. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and, it's really important. And as you say, you know, water's uh, you know component of food. Uh, so I just uh, we're we're at the end here. I just wanted to mention this. <laughs> jumped out at me. Just mentioned this at the end on on the blog. Uh, this is a December. I think December two thousand nine. Um, composting toilet as a holiday gift. So that's a it's, I guess a suggestion there. Um, really? <laughs> maybe uh, you know put that on my my list for this coming uh, you know for my friends and family. Uh, but that you know that's that'd be a, an option. I, I just want to mention this one as as well. I uh, don't have time to talk about it, but this was a very interesting project yeah. uh, you did. Uh, uh, the uh, Da Vinci Water Garden is at Da Vinci Arts Middle School in Portland, Oregon. It's located on an abandoned tennis court, and it redirects stormwater through from rooftops in a parking lot through an educational and artistic water garden. This is the type of work that you do get people thinking about uh, where their water comes well, from. Well, that that started the whole. Every school in Portland now captures their stain. Oh, they do. They do. So, oh, great. Yeah, that Wonderful. started it. Yep. Well, and Betsy Damon <laughs> is <laughs> Betsy Damon is environmental art activist, artist, planner, and designer. She's giving a couple of lectures on the Utah State University campus. I'll give you that information once again. October eighth, uh, six p.m. A lecture titled "I Am Water." That's at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, USU. And then on October 9th, seven p.m. A lecture "Water Creates" for the Science and Rap series. And those are parts of the um, Artsy STEM project and the 2015 Year of Water for USU. Betsy Damon, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> you pulled out my more radical... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. We should mention it at the end here as well. Go to keepersofthewaters.org for more information. Thanks so much. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.